Okay, in, in recent weeks, as uh, some of you know, we've been looking together at the subject of giving, focusing in the main on the Old Testament, exploring the theoretical basis for giving, and then it's, it's practical outworking as it's found there. This week, we shift our focus to look in the New Testament, to look at the one whose attitude and whose example must always be the defining factor for Christians. We're going to look, as we must, at Jesus and giving. Looking, among other things, at what he taught and at just what his, his practice actually was in this particular area of life. It's maybe worth saying, though, just at this point, that there are those who feel that Jesus has got little, even that he's got nothing to say on this subject. Those who feel that that what the Bible has to say about giving is very much confined in the main to the Old Testament and to the law as it's found there. With this, it's then argued, having little or no relevance for the Christian. The Christian for whom the main body of teaching regarding the faith is to be found in the New Testament, where one of the major themes is that of grace, that of God's free offer of forgiveness and of life and of love through Jesus Christ, which is then kind of extended along the lines of, you know, that, that God gives freely to us, so shouldn't we then be free in our giving to him? So we shouldn't be bound by restrictive Old Testament laws. Sadly, what too often, though, this leads to in practice is freely giving to God as little as it's felt can be got away with. And of course, this is all rooted in distorted thinking that arises from setting side by side things that shouldn't be set side by side. That is setting side by side that which is to do with the, the basis of salvation, that which actually makes us a Christian, God's grace, God's free love in Christ, with that which is actually to do with the outworking of that salvation, that which is to do with the, the living of the Christian life. That is the disciplined discipleship that includes, among many things, our attitude to giving. But you see, as I've said before, I, I see the relationship between the Old and the New Testament very differently, to the extent that while not every detail of Old Testament law is rigidly applicable to the Christian, yet without doubt, the major principles underlying every Old Testament law, I believe, most certainly are. For that, in my view, is the thrust of what Jesus says in his famous statement in Matthew 5, 17, where he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them, that is, in the sense of cutting away all of that dead Jewish legalism that was hiding the true purpose of the law. So uncovering then the law's true principles and then living those principles out, which is what Jesus did in a life of true godliness, which is what the law actually in principle was always supposed to produce. And as far as, as given in particular is concerned, well, there seems no doubt that regarding the Old Testament laws on things like tithes and offerings, that Jesus fulfilled them fully. 
And so you see, while in Matthew 23, 23, we find him denouncing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees there as far as their giving was concerned, yet this wasn't because, he didn't denounce them because they tithed, but he denounced them because as they gave, the rest of their life didn't match up with their giving. You see, they didn't have a hold of the heart of the law. They weren't right at heart with God. And this showed, one way it showed, is in that as they gave, they at the same time neglected things. Things like justice and mercy and righteousness and faithfulness. And Jesus', Jesus verdict on this, I think, is so relevant to, to what we're going to go on to look at together this morning. Jesus says, you should have practiced the latter. That is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But without neglecting the former, that is your responsibility to give to God. So that's the starting point then that we're going to work from as we move on to look at what the Bible has to say about Jesus and giving, which incidentally will involve us actually looking at his attitude to material things in their entirety and, and, and a bit more. So to do this, I'm going to use a very, very simple structure, one that's been used by many people before me. With the, My prayer has always been, as I share this with you, that in this area of life, as in every other area, that we will really make Jesus Christ the pattern for our lives. And that the principles we uncover that were part of Jesus' life we'll seek to put into practice in ours. So let's look then, first of all, at the way that he lived. The way that he lived. And straight away, right from the very beginnings of his earthly life, Jesus lived. Initially, his life was actually ordered for him in, in such a way as just to demonstrate the light hold that material things had in him. For he was born in a stable born in a stable, with this not being the pleasant, sweet-smelling, antiseptic place that, that used to be portrayed on Christmas cards before manufacturers and supermarkets unilaterally decided to remove Christ from Christmas. But no, this was a real stable. It was damp and dirty and smelly, and without even the benefit of a proper cot. Also, he was born to poor parents. Parents whose level of poverty is demonstrated in that when they went to the temple to make the, the usual thank offering to celebrate Jesus' birth, well, they made the poor man's offering of two pigeons rather than the rich man's offering of a lamb. And you can read about this in Luke. Plus added to this, it seems probable due to his early disappearance from the, the pages of the Bible and from what church Tradition tells us it seems probable that Joseph died when Jesus was still fairly young. Leaving him then as the, the oldest male with the responsibility of being the family breadwinner. So Jesus must have labored then as a Jewish carpenter. A physically demanding but low paid job with the extra burden of Roman taxes that were piled upon them making what had already been a harsh existence totally borderline. Then when you move on to the, the next phase in Jesus' life, his ministry, well, you don't find things getting any easier. For Jesus and his disciples, they moved around the country, relying on the support of friends. 
Any money that they got was was put in a common purse with the unlikely Judas, who the Bible identifies as a thief, designated to be their treasure. And out of what little money they had, as John 13, 29 tells us, they fed themselves and they gave gifts to the poor. So you see, throughout his three years on the road in ministry, Jesus had nowhere he could call home. And they relied on the, on the needs, on, on the kindness of others to meet his needs. At different times, he borrowed, among other things, a boat, a coin, a donkey. Even in the end, had to borrow his own tomb. Though I do like the tongue-in-cheek comment made by one writer that he only used it for a few days. And so at the very last, the only possession that he had, a humble robe, was taken from him and gambled for by his executioners. So it could then literally be said that when Jesus died, he died with absolutely nothing. So you see then, in the way that he lived, the whole life of Jesus was really an act of giving. Supremely, he gave himself for all of us, all mankind on that cross. But he didn't only give of himself there. Continuously, Throughout his life, every day of his life, Jesus gave himself for mankind. And please don't make the mistake of thinking that this was relatively easy then for him because, you know, people didn't have that much then anyway. Because while maybe in relation to our material status today, there's a kind of truth in that. Yet, you know, then as much as now, your status in society depended upon you having wealth and possessions more than your neighbor and hanging on to them as tightly as you could. Jesus, though, lived a life that stood in absolute contradiction to those kind of values. He chose not to grab and to hold to himself, but rather to give, to empty himself, to give freely and generously. Well, what we're going to try and uncover now is, is the secret of this, of Jesus' attitude to wealth and possessions and the secret of his attitude to giving as we move on from this to look now at the things that he said. And you know, we, let me just send a wee word of warning. We do have to take great care here in interpreting what Jesus said because it is so easy at times to twist and distort things and make things say what we want them to say. For instance, a number of years ago now, someone shared with me what they insisted was a, a true story about a little boy and his Sunday school lesson. And the theme of the lesson in his Sunday school that day was give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And of course, within this passage, prominent within it was the incident where Jesus asked the Pharisees, remember, for a penny. And then in the authorised version, he asked the question of them, Whose image and superscription is this? That is on that penny. Anyway, when he got home, the little boy was asked the usual question. I think they still get asked at lunch. What was the lesson about today? What did you learn in Sunday school? Oh, was his reply. It was about a man who gave Jesus a penny. And then Jesus said, whose mingy subscription is this? I was told that this was true. 
So then one thing we need to get clear at the outset, if we're going to look at what Jesus said, is that in all Jesus said about money and possessions and giving, etc., etc., nowhere did he ever contradict the teaching of the rest of the Bible. He didn't condemn the owning of private property. Nor did he say that it was wrong for Christians to save, to cover maybe for some unforeseen emergency. I mean, in Proverbs 6, 6 there, the ant is commended for storing the food in summer that it will need in winter. And coming at this from a little bit of a different angle, 1 Timothy 5.8 says that Christians who do not provide for their relatives, for their family, especially their immediate family, are denying the faith and are worse than unbelievers. And Jesus never at any time went against any of this teaching. And nor did he say that Christians were to be drab and doer, that they were to make sure that they didn't give the impression that they were having too good a time in life. doesn't say that. Rather, as 1 Timothy 4.4 4 says, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So you see that the good things of life, properly used, respected with an acknowledgement that God is the giver of all that is good, these things, the Bible says, are to be embraced and to be enjoyed. And Jesus embodied all of this. He was ready to have his feet anointed, remember, with precious perfume. He was ready to be a guest on a number of occasions at dinner parties, he was ready to enjoy a wedding party at that famous wedding at Cana in Galilee. So nowhere does the Bible say, nor does Jesus ever say, that for a Christian to truly be a Christian and be living the Christian life, do they have to be either poverty-stricken or totally miserable. But what Jesus did say, and what he illustrated wonderfully by the way that he lived, what comes through loud and clear in all that Jesus teaches about money and possessions and giving, what comes through as his main theme again and again is that what is all important is again our heart and our attitude. Now, as we saw earlier, he criticized the Pharisees because their heart and their attitude was wrong. But you see, that's always the case. That's not a one-off. That's always the case in the Bible. The heart, the attitude is what's all important. I mean, right back at the very beginnings of God dealings with man in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, we see that illustrated there. Remember, both of them brought offerings to God. One, though, Abel's offering of a lamb was acceptable to God. Caleb's offering, however, Verse 3 of that passage of the fruits of the soil was not acceptable to God. And the reason for this was not, as one little boy once said, because God, like me, doesn't like fruit and vegetables. This is not divine sanction for salad dodging. Rather, the reason for this, as Genesis 11.4 goes on to make clear, is because God looks beyond the gift and looks into the hearts of those who give. And when God looked into Abel's heart, he saw faith and he saw trust and he saw love. And that's what made his offering acceptable to God. You see, what matters to God 
Much more than what we give is what's motivating us to give. That's what God's looking at. That's what concerns him as he calls us to give. That we've got the right attitudes, the right priorities, and the right values right at the very heart of who we are. You see, God calls us too as we give. He calls us to look at our lives. He calls us to examine our hearts. He calls us to face up to ourselves and to see what's really important in our lives. What we actually do is put first when the chips are down. And what that then says about our state of spiritual health or otherwise. And one of the verses that we read earlier really sums up, I think, just so much that's key to the teaching of Jesus here. Matthew 6, 24, where Jesus tells us what a wrong attitude is and what by implication when our attitude is right. Because Jesus says there, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that the only way that we can truly know and truly serve God is when he is Lord of our lives, when he is the object of our exclusive devotion. So whenever anything else rivals God for our devotion, for first place in our lives, first place in our priorities, then really we're no longer serving God as we should. And we cannot know him as he longs to be known. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once famously put it like this, that our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion. And we can only cleave to one Lord. You see, God just won't take second place. He won't share his rightful place with anything else in life. His character, who he is, the fact that he is Lord, that he is God, just won't allow him to do it. As Isaiah 42 verse 8 puts it, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So then, a right attitude to possessions acknowledges God's lordship. A wrong attitude denies God's lordship. And tied in with this, with this acknowledgement of God's lordship, is also an appreciation of his love. For whenever someone truly knows God as Lord, they become aware of his love. You know, that this mighty, sovereign God, this Lord in Christ became a man and died on a cross because of his love. Because he loved me. As we then know and appreciate this love, truly know it, truly appreciate it, and then as his love flows increasingly into our hearts and into our lives, well then of course we'll be set free in turn to be channels of that love. Set free to be his instruments used to share the knowledge and experience of his love with many. And just one instrument, as our hearts are right with God, will be that we will want to use 
that wealth which we have been given by him to express his love. Okay, just a a, a little review. A right attitude to possessions, a truly Christ-like attitude, involves acknowledging God's lordship over them, over all that we have, seeing them as gifts of God's love, and then using what we have in turn to share God's love. A wrong attitude to it, attitude, however, denies all these things. A wrong attitude gives created things a greater value than the creator. It simply grabs greedily while refusing to acknowledge the giver. And of course, someone who's in the grasp of this kind of wrong attitude would never dream of sacrificially and freely giving either to God or to a brother and sister in need. So you see, giving them really is God's way of testing our attitudes, of testing our hearts. It is a spiritual health check. It's God's way of asking, am I truly your Lord? Am I? Then prove it as you give. Do you truly appreciate my love? Then don't just sing about it. Don't just talk about it. But prove it. Demonstrate it. Show it. As you give back to me some of the fruits of that love. As Ian Coffey says, and I think this is really challenging. You may be poor. You may be rich. It matters not. What counts is that the king has total ownership of all that you possess. You see, when the Lord calls us to give, that's what he's asking us to prove. Let me just finish now by looking at something of what the results are of a a wrong attitude and a right attitude to money and possessions. The results, and the, the first result of a wrong attitude is that if possessions are too important to us, they can be a great hindrance to us entering the kingdom. Because you see, for some, the thought of of giving, the thought of sharing our treasured possessions might make us not want to follow a God who seems to demand so much and yet who if only we knew, if only we were ready to trust him, who gives back so much more in return. So Jesus said in Luke 18, 24, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's true that there can be a real danger in riches. In fact, in the Bible, indeed, in that verse we read earlier about serving God and money, well, money and wealth, possessions are seen as, as ways, inroads that the devil loves to use in order to lure someone away, in order to seduce us from a wholehearted commitment to God. And you see, we can only deal with this if we are ready to recognize this danger, if we're aware of it on guard, and then remember that our great responsibility as Christians always is to use what we have for God's glory. And here, let's be clear, let's really be clear, let's understand We will never, ever be able to really give in a biblical way unless we're walking close to God. That's a fact. Richard Foster, he says this in this context. He says, the call of God is upon us 
to use money within the confines of a properly disciplined spiritual life and to manage our money for the good of all humanity and for the glory of God. When this is done, we are drawn deeper into the divine center. But just to develop a little bit what we touched on a moment or two ago, money and possessions, things of that kind, if they're too important for us, they can seriously impede our growth and progress in the spiritual life. The famous parable of the sower in Mark 4 tells us something about this. Just for example, in verse 19, where it says, But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word in someone's life, making it unfruitful. And another parable, the parable of the sheep and goats, even tells us, that our attitude to money and possessions actually plays a part even in the last judgment. For in Matthew 25, 35, it says there, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And on it goes. You see, those who give in this kind of way are seen as those who are accepted into the kingdom. But those who refuse to give, they receive the righteous judgment of the king. Now, I don't believe this is saying that we can be saved by works, by giving or anything of that kind. And I don't believe this is saying that if by faith we're truly Christians, but for some reason whatever happened in our life for a period don't give, that this means that we're confined consigned, sorry, to judgment. Rather, I believe what this is actually getting at is how seriously out of kilter our Christian lives actually are if we find ourselves in this situation. That for a Christian to be mean towards God, someone who knows of God's lordship, someone who has experienced of his love, well, what this is saying is that this is spiritually unnatural. That it's almost inconceivable. Finally, and just for a few minutes, let's finish by looking at results of a, a right attitude to money and giving. And you know, really, the story that we've been looking at together, off and on, of that early church in Acts, is just a living example of this. Acts 2, 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone as they had need. And then notice what it goes on to say in verse 47. The Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. You see, those Christians there, they knew firsthand of the mighty demonstration of God's Lordship and the death and resurrection of Jesus. They'd experienced in themselves the overflow of God's love and now they in turn were acting as channels of that love. You see, like Jesus, they'd come not to despise the things of this world, but rather to see their relative unimportance in comparison to the sheer joy of knowing and serving the Lord. So for them, now their wealth's major importance lay first in how could it be best used to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. And it worked. It worked. Daily, the Lord added to their number those 
who were being saved. You know, people sometimes say that there's nothing in the New Testament about tithing. Well, strictly that's not true. But certainly, there's not a heavy emphasis on tithing in the New Testament. There isn't. The question is, though, why? Why isn't it there? Why isn't it there? I'll tell you. Because it was totally unnecessary. For the first Christians were Jews. They accepted tithing as read. And the fact that their giving made such an impact on their fellow non-Christian Jews, as is testified by history. Well, what that tells us is that moved and motivated as they were, by the knowledge and experience they had of the love and the lordship of God, that they went way beyond that obligation of the time. So what then about us? Well, all I ask, you've got your own responsibilities. We're all individuals. All I ask is that you order, as you order your finances within the limits that you have, we've all got different limits, that you keep in your mind these simple thoughts. Does this reflect God's lordship? That God's first? That he's in control over my life? And is this an adequate token, a symbol of my appreciation for the love he has shown me and for the love he is showing me? And remember also the words of Jesus. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And please never be fooled. Allow yourself to be fooled into thinking that money isn't spiritual and that it doesn't really matter because it most certainly is and it most certainly does because the way we use our money so often shows just what's going on within Who's winning the battle within? So I pray, may we learn to use all that we have and to use all that we are for the sake of the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word and for all that it teaches us and for the fact that, Lord, it touches and impinges on every area of our lives. It brings us a challenge, but Lord, the challenge is a challenge that's intended to lead us into just a place of joy and a place of freedom. Lord, you don't want us to be shackled. You don't want us to be held back. You want us to enjoy life, to enjoy all the good things that you've given, and you want us to share them. You want us to give freely, as we have received so freely and wonderfully in Jesus. So Lord, be with us. Lead us and guide us in this, we pray in Jesus' name.